Hello, everyone. Uh, this is a reminder that the Path Went Chilly is a discussion podcast in which myself, Ashley, and Jules have in-depth conversations about cases I previously covered on The Trail Went Cold. If you're someone who prefers solo podcasts involving one person, my original Trail Went Cold episodes are available for download. But if you're someone who likes discussion-style podcasts and wants to hear myself, Ashley, and Jules get way more in-depth into these cases I previously covered, then The Path Went Chilly is the podcast for you. Welcome back to The Path Went Chilly. I'm Robin. I'm Jules. And I'm Ashley. Robin, you were just at CrimeCon. Do you want to fill us in on how this year's festivities went? Well, this year's CrimeCon event took place in Las Vegas, and it marked my first time being able to travel outside of Canada in nearly three years because of the pandemic. I attended the first three CrimeCon events in Indianapolis, Nashville, and New Orleans, but I had to miss last year's event in Austin because the Canada-U.S. border was still closed. But it was great to get back into the grind again and see and hang out with my fellow podcasters, listeners, and friends. And it's probably a good idea that we waited an entire week after I got home to record this episode because all this activity left my voice pretty hoarse. Uh, the way the whole process works is that The Trail Went Cold has its own booth on Podcast Row at CrimeCon, in which attendees can stop by and meet you, and it's pretty humbling to have people tell me how much they love my podcast and ask to take selfies with me. And my booth just happened to be right next to the True Crime Garage booth, where Nick and the Captain always have the longest lineups of fans, so I was lucky enough to get a lot of spillover traffic. I spent a couple of days exploring Vegas and attended a number of interesting sessions at CrimeCon, including one about the West Memphis Three, and another one featuring John JonBenet Ramsey's father, John Ramsey. And next month, I'm going to be traveling to London to attend CrimeCon UK, and at the end of August, I'll also be attending the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas. Oh, and it's also worth mentioning that quite a few listeners told me how much they enjoyed The Path Went Chilly and how much they loved Jules and Ashley, so one of these days, the three of us will have to appear together at a podcasting event. Oh, shucks, guys. How, how cool is that? Robin, I'm very jealous. One, because I just want to hug you and Jules in person. And I also got to see that you met a lot of the people that we've all interacted with because as podcasters, we're all this tiny little family. So I loved seeing your pictures. And thanks for telling us about the event. It sounds so fun. Yes, one of the best people to meet was Eric from True Consequences, because uh, that was where we first met. We did our first episode together about baby Jacob, and I communicated with Eric a lot online, but it was great to uh, finally meet him in person, and we drank together in a hotel suite at a cocktail <laughs> party, so he's a lot of fun to be around. <laughs> that makes me so happy. He has the kindest heart, and Jules, Jules and I, every time I'm like on with him, there's at least one or two times I just want to cry and hug him. He's such a good soul and does so much great work. So what a, what an awesome night. Oh, I'm so jealous you got to meet all of these people and spend time with Eric. Like I, I think the three of us should definitely aim for CrimeCon next year in F Ashley's home state of Florida. Yes, in Orlando and only about 15 minutes away from the site of Tommy Ziegler's former furniture store. So that would be a great place for the three of us to finally meet because at the time of our recording... We have still not met each other in person. We've only talked on Zoom, so one of these days it has to happen. So all right, Jules, take it away and start talking about today's case. March 5th, 1974, Coconut Grove, Florida. 17-year-old Amy Billig phones her father from her home and arranges to meet him at his workplace in order to borrow money to have lunch with friends. Amy is last hitchhiking on a highway, 
but never shows up to meet her father or her friends, and is subsequently reported missing. After being informed that Amy was abducted by a gang of bikers, Amy's mother spends the next several years attempting to track her down without success. The Billig family also endures two decades worth of harassing phone calls from a man who claims to have kidnapped Amy. But even after the caller is identified and arrested, no trace of Amy is ever found. After that, the path went chilly. So today we're going to be covering a very memorable missing persons case which was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, the 1974 disappearance of Amy Billig. And this story is a very convoluted saga which wound up lasting over two decades. It involves a 17-year-old girl who vanished with that explanation while on her way to meet her father, and her family soon received a tip that Amy had been abducted by a notorious biker gang who was in the area at that time. One of the most remarkable aspects of this story is Amy's mother, Sue Billig, who may be the most relentless parent of a missing person I have ever seen. Over the course of several years, Sue chased down every possible lead, even though it involved interacting with some dangerous characters and potentially putting her own life at risk. There were many occasions in which, there were many occasions in which it seemed like Sue was only a step or two away from finding her daughter, but just could not uncover conclusive evidence that Amy was still alive. It's also possible that the whole biker angle was nothing more than a wild goose chase, as it turned out that another individual spent the better part of 20 years tormenting the Billig family with phone calls in which he claimed to be responsible for Amy's disappearance. In the end, we still don't know what actually happened to Amy, so we're going to explore all the different angles of this story over the course of our next two episodes. Well, I mean, just this first couple of paragraphs you guys have told me, I feel like we could fill hours breaking down this information because you have it, you know, we're in the 70s. Amy is hitchhiking, which now seems crazy, but back then was a very standard practice. And all of a sudden, it seems like there's instant answers that this biker gang has her. And then you have this person who's calling the family, which we've discussed on many of our episodes, how disturbing and demented that is, that you would take a family who's struggling so mightily and add to their trauma by harassing and almost mocking their grief by with these phone calls. And yet again, we have another hero mother who steps up and literally puts herself at risk to fight for, for answers in Amy's case. So I am dying to know what we know and see if we can get this story back out there. Yes, this story could probably be made into a movie. There's so many twists and turns, but the only thing it's missing is a conclusive ending. So without any further ado, let us now delve into the unsolved disappearance of Amy Billig. Our story begins in 1974 in Coconut Grove, Florida, the oldest neighborhood in Miami. Our central figure is Amy Billig, a 17-year-old senior at the Adelphi Academy of Coral Gables, who is only three weeks away from graduation. Amy currently lives with her mother and father, Susan and Ned Billig, as well as her 16-year-old brother, Josh. The Billigs originally hail from Oyster Bay, New York, and moved to Florida six years earlier, and Ned currently owns a local art gallery. Susan, who usually goes by the name Sue, had a very difficult time having children, as she had to endure five miscarriages over the course of ten years before she finally gave birth to her daughter. Amy's been described as a flower child, whose passions include reading, writing poetry, singing, and playing the flute and guitar, and she hopes to become an actress someday. At around noon on March 5th, 
Amy returned home from school for lunch. She phoned her father at his art gallery to ask if she could borrow $2 since she was planning to go downtown to meet two of her friends for lunch. Ned said yes and asked Amy to meet him at the art gallery, which was less than a mile away, in order to pick up the money. Amy would last be seen by construction workers um, holding her thumb out on the corner of Main Highway and Poinciana Street. This implied that Amy was planning to hitchhike, which she often did since it was a much more common practice back then. However, Amy would not arrive at the art gallery or meet her friends for lunch. When she failed to return home for dinner, her family contacted the police and reported her missing. That's so interesting because she was, what, a mile away from dad's house. You think, or dad's gallery, do you think she would have hitchhiked that mile instead of walking? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know if it was her uh, common routine to uh, walk that distance because it was less than a mile away. Maybe she was just thinking that because she wanted to meet her friends as quickly as possible and needed to get money from her father that she just wanted to get there as quickly as possible, which is why she decided to hitchhike. But uh, we still don't know if these witnesses are 100% accurate because for, for all we know, they could have seen another girl matching her description hitchhiking. But it seems to be the consensus that that's what she was doing that day. So once Amy's disappearance started generating publicity, numerous eyewitnesses would, would come forward who claimed to have seen her, but their accounts often contradicted one another, as these witnesses reported seeing Amy climb into a number of different vehicles, including a light-colored pickup truck, a light-colored Jeep, and a beige van. Eleven days after Amy originally went missing, the Billick family received a phone call from a woman calling herself Susan Johnson. She said this wasn't her real name because she was in fear for her life, but Johnson claimed that Amy had been abducted by a renegade motorcycle gang known as the Outlaws while she was hitchhiking. According to Johnson, a friend of hers had seen Amy with the gang in Daytona Beach, which had recently held their annual Bike Week event. Since it would turn out the Outlaws had passed through Coconut Grove on the same day Amy went missing, this seemed like a promising lead. Oh, and when you think about Daytona Bike Week, it, it really has this reputation of being a really rough group. I mean, there's a lot of different types of people who ride motorcycles, attorneys, you know, doctors, but there's also really, you know, really dangerous biker gangs. So the Outlaws is a pretty well-known biker gang, if I'm not mistaken, that was known for doing really, really dirty things, really heavy in the drug market. And so I could see where there'd be this concern that that would be someone or a group that would be out to maybe, you know, hurt somebody. Yeah, the Outlaws were definitely a notorious biker gang from that era who you would want to stay away with, and they pretty much regarded women as objects. So if they abducted you and kept you as your property, then you were in a really bad place. However, before this lead with the biker gang could be pursued any further, another unexpected development occurred. On March 18th, a hitchhiker found an instamatic camera in the grass next to the southbound lane to Florida's Turnpike approximately 250 miles north of Miami. The camera was in close proximity to an off-ramp exit, which led to the town of Wildwood, and it had a piece of adhesive tape with Amy Billing's, Amy Billing's name on it. Since the Billig family were unable to recall the last time they'd seen this camera, it could not be conclusively determined if Amy had it with her at the time that she disappeared, or if it might have been lost or stolen on a previous occasion. There was a roll of film in the camera containing four undeveloped photographs, but three of them were too overexposed to be of any use. 
The fourth photo featured a a vine-covered wall with a white pickup truck parked in the background, but no one recognized the truck or could figure out if the photo was related to Amy's disappearance. I would find it really bizarre if this camera wasn't discarded after she was taken, because what is the chance that the, you know, your camera gets stolen or goes missing, you go missing, and then all of a sudden it's randomly found off of an exit ramp? It just seems really bizarre if that was a, you know, I don't know, conveniently misplaced item. It seems very like it was on her person. They're trying to discard of evidence and it's thrown off this ramp. And the fact that it was 250 miles away, which is quite a long ways away, and but we can never conclusively determine if Amy would have had any need to take her camera with her when she left the house to go see her friends for lunch. So that's why they can't determine what, if maybe it was stolen on a, on a previous occasion and someone else lost it there. But because it had her name on it, they could definitely be certain that it was her camera. Seems like a strange coincidence that it would just randomly go missing and then be found after she's missing as well and that it wasn't tied to her disappearance or discarded from her person after she was taken? I mean, I guess it could happen, but it does seem so strange. The next significant development took place on March the 21st when the Billigs received a phone call from someone who claimed to have kidnapped Amy and was demanding a $30,000 ransom for a return. During one of the calls, Sue could even hear the muffled sounds of someone saying, Mama, Mama, please, in the background. Sue was eventually provided with instructions for a ransom drop in the lobby of a Miami Beach hotel, and when she showed up with the money, Sue was surprised to encounter a teenage boy. Since the Billings had notified the police about the ransom call, they were staking out the lobby and quickly made an arrest. It turned out the callers were a pair of 16-year-old twin brothers named Charles and Larry Glasser, and while they were charged with extortion, investigators concluded that they had no actual involvement in Amy's disappearance. Wow. 16-year-old twin brothers was not where I thought you were going to be going with that. No. And I can't, no, right, at all. But I, I can't fathom, even as a child, like who sits there and thinks up this idea that we're going to take a family in the midst of this horrific, grief-stricken situation where their daughter's missing, and we're going to extort money from them. We're literally going to manipulate them and give them hope that their daughter's alive. Like, what a sick, twisted duo who who could do something like that? I mean, I can see teenagers t- doing pranks, but going so far as to try to extort $30,000 from a family who've lost their daughter, that seems pretty extreme and ambitious for two teenagers. And it's worth mentioning that after my, I originally released my Trail Went Cold episode back in 2019, one of my uh, listeners found a website where she found out that one of these twin brothers was currently working a good job. I think they were the president of a company. And almost felt the need, uh, almost felt compelled to harass them to ask, why did you extort Amy Billig's parents like 45 years ago? <laughs> oh my God. But it's true. I mean, like, what a, what a, what a dark, dark thing to do to somebody. And I'm glad they were arrested. And I mean, $30,000 <laughs> at the time, that would be at least double that now. That does seem rather ambitious from two 16 year olds. So it's a nice thing that one of the brothers actually took that intelligence and ambition and channeled it to a more positive outcome yes at least it doesn't sound like they went on to have uh, become career criminals at least they uh they turned their lives around and just i guess maybe chalked this up to a childish teenage prank even though it was one where they tried to extort thirty thousand dollars around this same time the billings also started to receive harassing calls from a man calling himself hal johnson who claimed that he'd abducted amy and was training her as a sex slave 
This man would continuously torment the Billigs with harassing phone calls at all hours of the night, in which he described horrible things that were happening to Amy. But we'll talk more about him in a little while. So by the end of March, Amy's high school graduation took place. But since she was still missing, the school decided to graduate her in absentia. My God. Um, Okay, so I thought the boys were bad, the two 16-year-old boys. But whoever Hal Johnson is, not only is he calling to say he took her, but then he's putting one of the most horrific scenarios you could even describe to a family into their heads, right? Not only did I take her, but she's alive and a sex slave. And he, then he describes what he's doing to her. Like, oh, it makes my skin crawl. It's horrifying that somebody could do that. I'm assuming that we, that never led to anything either. And in the midst of that, the family watches the other side of the coin where people rally around their daughter's memory, hoping she's coming home and they graduate her even though she's not present at her high school graduation. It's just, you can think about those dualities where it's a moment they should have been celebrating. And yet they're dealing with not only her missing, but all of this harassment as well, while they're trying to still honor her memory. Oh, as this episode goes on, you are going to get more progressively enraged with Hal Johnson (gasps) because it gets even worse with him. Like this uh, side story is just one of the most unbelievable things I've ever seen in an unsolved case. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm praying that you're going to tell me he's arrested, but let's keep going. Let's I'll wait. I'll wait with the listeners. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since there was still no trace of Amy, the Billigs wanted to explore the tip they received about her being abducted by a biker gang. They wound up speaking to a bail bondsman who had worked with the outlaws, and he arranged for two bikers from the gang to visit the Billig home for a meeting. When they arrived, Sue and and Ned asked if they knew anything about Amy's disappearance and showed them a photograph of her. They both claimed to have never seen Amy, but did confirm that it was not uncommon for motorcycle gangs to kidnap and sell young women, whom they usually referred to as quote-unquote old ladies. They would often ensure that the victims were hooked on drugs in order to keep them trapped in that lifestyle, and the bikers had such little regard for these women as human beings that they would be treated as property and traded for such items as a motorcycle or a credit card. Oh my god, so it really is like an underground human trafficking sex trade kind of organization. Yes, it's definitely legitimate with the bikers, because as we're going to talk about later on, there have uh, women who have come forward and claimed that they were traded by biker gangs while they were teenagers, pretty much as sex slaves, before they were able to escape. The two outlaw members took Amy's photo and promised to ask around about her, but were unable to turn up any information. In fact, during their final phone conversation with Sue, they advised her to forget the whole thing. However, Sue didn't want to ignore this lead, and she decided to perform her own independent investigation. Three months after Amy originally went missing, Sue received word that the outlaws were in Orlando and had been staying in a clubhouse outside the nearby town of Kissimmee before they left the area. Sue visited the empty clubhouse and found a hairbrush containing a female hair, which was later determined to be consistent with Amy's. Sue showed Amy's photograph to a number of local residents who believed that they'd seen her with the outlaws. The most promising identification came from a convenience store manager who recognized Amy's photo and said that she often saw her frequent the store accompanied by bikers and that she always bought vegetarian soup. Since Amy was a strict vegetarian, this convinced Sue that the manager had seen Amy and that she was still alive and being held against her will. 
But unfortunately, all of Sue's attempts to track down her daughter were unsuccessful. The search for Amy crippled the Billigs financially and caused Ned to develop a drinking problem and sink into a deep depression. He wound up losing his art gallery and the family was forced to move into a smaller home. God bless him. I mean, this, okay, so here you actually have Sue basically being a detective and throwing herself into the middle of an investigation with dangerous people, which you guys alluded to at the beginning. But, you know, she's begging this group, hey, do you know anything? Can you find out anything? And just them saying, quote, forget the whole thing gives you that inclination that they knew more than they were letting her know. And she keeps fighting, even against their recommendation. Now, when you guys said that the hairbrush had female hair that was determined to be consistent with Amy's, I'm assuming that's just like the the shaft and the damage and things like that, the color, all of that was consistent. I'm assuming DNA was never performed on that back in the, I mean, that would be 20 something years later when DNA was advanced enough to test it. Yeah, DNA testing was not a thing back in 1974. And as far as I can tell, uh, Sue never preserved this hair because she wasn't working with the police. She was working independently. So I don't think she thought that if I hold on to this, I can do DNA testing in 20 years. So unfortunately, they never were able to conclusively determine if it belonged to Amy. So in November of 1975, Sue received a phone call from a man who claimed to be a member of another motorcycle gang called the Pagans. He said he had recently gotten out of jail and saw a photo in a newspaper of Sue holding a sign with Amy's picture on it. Not only did he recognize Amy from this photo, but he said he had actually owned her for a time and referred to her as his quote-unquote old lady. He agreed to a meeting at a remote gas station in which he promised to reveal more information. Well, Sue and Ned went to this location and were soon met by a large biker. It turned out his name was Paul Branch and he had an extensive criminal record which included an eight-year prison sentence for murder. Branch told the Billigs he would only share Branch told the Billigs he would only share the full story about Amy with Sue if she would accompany him to his trailer alone. Naturally, Ned did not want his wife doing this, but Sue told him it was okay and climbed onto Branch's bike. He then took Sue to his trailer and after they arrived, she showed him a photograph of Amy. Branch confirmed that he knew her and that she went by the nickname Mute since she was so quiet and appeared to be afraid of everyone. Holy crap. Sue is is bold. I can't imagine standing there next to my spouse and the, a man who ab- absolutely has a history with crime saying, I'm going to help you, but only if you, the wife, come with me on my bike by yourself to my trailer. I mean, he's telling you that he basically has you know, has a relationship with her or has been involved in some kind of sex trade with her. And now I'm asking her mother to go alone with me to the trailer. Like to me, you know, Ned and probably Sue thought there's a big risk. I could get assaulted or hurt by him if I go. And she still said yes. Yeah, that's what's so, so remarkable about her is that she pretty much had this attitude that, well, it's it could be jeopardizing my safety if I go with this guy. But on the other hand, if I let him just go off and I don't find out what he knows about Amy and he was telling the truth, I will regret this for the rest of my life. So she was pretty much at the point where she was so desperate to find out what happened to Amy that she was willing to risk everything in order for an opportunity to find out the truth. Isn't it creepy, though, that he's like, yeah, it's fine if Sue comes alone to my trailer. Like, why does she need to come alone? If you're willing to share this information, can you not have both Ned and Sue go to your trailer? Like, why do you need to get her alone? And especially when you know that it's like a grieving mom and she's really struggling. Like, 
You're not going to let the support person be there with her, you know? Doesn't seem like Paul Branch was too concerned with that since he basically had a sex traffic girl called Mute and he just kept her. Like, he doesn't really sound like somebody who's too concerned with the emotions of others. I mean, put yourself in Sue's shoes and just be... Just to kind of visualize yourself being next to a guy who said that they had done something like that to your daughter and is just expecting you to stand there and listen to him without losing your mind. I can't imagine. No. And like, no wonder poor Ned, you know, he lost everything and Sue with him, you know, and I think most people would have that similar reaction where it's like you're just trying to dull the pain and trying to fight for a, a reason to actually function in the world after your baby's missing and most likely not in a good place. So according to Branch, he'd met Mute at a biker party in Orlando. She looked so beaten and drugged out that she couldn't even remember who she was or where she was most of the time. So Branch offered to buy her, and they lived together for a few months. One day in July 1974, after leaving Mute with a friend of his for safekeeping, Branch wound up getting arrested, and by the time he was released from jail, Mute and his friend were gone, and he hadn't seen her since. When Sue asked Branch to provide proof to back up his story, he mentioned a hidden two-inch appendectomy scar Mute had on her body. Since Amy had a scar like this, and Sue had never divulged this detail to either the police or the media, this convinced her that Branch was telling the truth. Branch said that he would attempt to contact another biker to try to find out where Amy was and get back to Sue when he had more information. What? 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 Are you serious? He was able to identify a scar that had never been disclosed before. I And, and the vegetarian soup and all of these other descriptions, the hair. I mean, you know Sue was going like, oh my God, this is true. Like, this is very true. You don't need the police to be confirming that for you you're standing with somebody who says they had her in their possession and literally like a piece of property the a friend quote stole her away from him how would you i don't even know how you would hold it together right then he literally had contact with her daughter i mean that detail about the appendectomy scar really bothers me i mean there are many reasons as we're going to talk about later on to believe that paul branch might be full of it but that is a really specific detail which he should not have known unless he had actually had amy in his possession but we've seen this before with cases where it seems like a suspect or maybe somebody who's incarcerated gives up a detail not known to the press or not known to anyone else but it's later proved that they had absolutely zero to do with the crime And I'm not saying that, like, he's lying about the appendectomy scar or this mute person. I'm just saying that, like, it is a pretty common scar. A lot of people have had appendectomies, right? So we're looking at these details and we're reading so much into them. Like, I'm sure Sue and Ned were, too, hoping that it is indeed Amy. Because, like Ash said, we've got the hair. We've got the vegetarian soup. But, like, don't a lot of people like vegetable soup? And a lot of people probably have a similar hair color. When we don't have DNA or anything conclusive to tie to it, we've got a lot of hope attached to these things, but it's like so hard to make any definitive conclusions like, yes, indeed, it is Amy. But the scar? Well, I guess uh, multiple people would have appendectomy scars, so I guess it's possible that Branch could have had another young woman in his possession who had a similar scar, and it's just a lucky coincidence that Amy happened to have one too. They could have just looked really similar. Like, it is very possible that it could have just been a girl that looked a lot like Amy and also it happened to have an appendectomy. 
I guess that's true. I guess that's true. It's just, oh man, when you said that, my stomach went, oh no, this is, I, and, and just, let's just, let's just be sued for a second. Getting that kind of information, you know, for her so badly needing to believe that, how would you react in his presence? It would just be so overwhelming. Yeah, it would be extremely overwhelming. Like, I, I think when you hear the scar and before you think about the appendectomy and how common they are, it's so much easier to attach more meaning to it. Like, I think if it was a very specific scar across, like, say she had a slash mark across, like, her right cheek or she had one over top of her, you know, left eyebrow or something that was like a very specific scar that very few people have, I think it would be a little bit more compelling. But I think at, you know, first glance, you're like, whoa. Same scar, vegetable soup, hair, it has to be Amy. So I can imagine Sue would have just been overwhelmed by this information, probably wholeheartedly believing that it was her daughter. Yeah, it says approximately 7% of people um, in, well, in America will have an appendectomy scar after they have appendicitis. So, so that's, that is pretty high if you're thinking about multiple women that they're running through there. I, I could see another dark-haired woman having an appendectomy scar. Then. That's still, oh man, the mom in me wants it to be her so badly. Yeah, when you got your hope attached to something like that, I think it's so easy to just see that like as another stone on the pathway to finding your daughter. So in June of 1976, Branch contacted Sue and told her that Amy was in Tulsa, Oklahoma with another motorcycle gang known as the Rogues. He asked Sue to meet him there and would make arrangements for her to see her daughter again. Well, Sue traveled to Tulsa, but she was forced to wait in a motel for weeks before Branch finally showed up. Now, there are differing accounts of what happened next. In a book which was published about this case titled, Without a Trace, The Disappearance of Amy Billig, the story goes that after he arrived in Tulsa, Branch told Sue that he was going to search for Amy and let her know when he found her. But he never contacted Sue, and since her expenses from staying in Tulsa had completely depleted her funds, she decided to fly back home. However, according to the Unsolved Mystery segment, Branch actually took Sue to a local tavern filled with bikers and promised that Amy would be delivered to her there. But when Branch went over to speak with some other bikers, the situation escalated into a fight. A biker then grabbed Sue and took her outside, where he placed her inside a waiting taxi cab and she was driven away from the scene. I'm not sure which version is true, but whatever the case, the next time Sue heard anything about Branch, she was told that both of his kneecaps had been broken, so he never contacted her again. However, Branch later sent Sue a message through her attorney that he heard Amy was now in Seattle, Washington. So can we confirm his kneecaps were broken? I, I don't think she did, no. Like, she just got a message from him, and or someone else told her that, but I don't think she physically saw him in the hospital. So for all we know, maybe he was just making that story up as an excuse to break off all contact with her. Well, that's what I, I was going to say. If if we did have proof of that, I mean, again, it would be one of those things where you go, my God, he's on to something. Or people are watching his actions and saying he's a little too close. So they, you know, enact this punishment on him. But if we don't have that confirmed, it's almost, I could also see him being that kind of personality that just needs to be involved in something. And he's just manipulating the situation as well. But to go through his attorney to keep trying to reach out to the family, it is it's unsettling. And also, again, as a mother, I'd, I'd need to hear from him. What's he getting out of this is my question. You know what I mean? Like, this is a guy that's doing some unscrupulous, unethical, like decidedly disgusting things and trafficking young women and buying and selling them and keeping them, calling them his old lady. Like, it's gross. 
And then he's like telling Sue all this information, but he's being rather like loose-lipped about things. And if these are gang activities that they're involved in, I can't imagine other members of the gang would take too kindly to Paul Branch sharing so much with Sue and then showing up at this biker bar. I think it would be too much. So it is possible that he could have been giving her this information. And then other bikers were like, dude, what are you doing? You know, this is an operation that we have going and you're threatening it by telling this mother these things. So then maybe that would make sense why he then went through his attorney at a later date. I know Sue on Unsolved Mysteries even pushed forward the possibility that that entire fight at the bar was staged uh, just for her own thing to make maybe like drive her off and make it look like if you try to get any closer, your life could potentially be in danger. So she's always been a bit skeptical that Branch was actually injured in that fight, but because she never saw him personally afterwards, she can't be certain. But he could have iced her out so long ago. Like, why would he keep dragging her along? Do you know what I mean? Like, what is he getting out of that? He could have shut her down right from the jump, but he chose to keep getting involved and keep like, is he that personality type, like Ashley said, that is one of those people that just wants to insert themselves? I think that's definitely possible that uh, because he was in prison for a while. And then when he got out, he saw this photograph of Sue holding Amy's uh, picture in the newspaper. And that's when he came forward. So maybe he just had this compulsive need to insert himself into this case. By 1977, the stress of the whole situation caused Sue to suffer a mild heart attack, which required a bypass operation. But this was not going to slow her down on her quest to find Amy. So only two months after the operation, Sue traveled to Seattle to resume her search. She frequented a number of local bars, tattoo parlors, and motorcycle shops, and showed Amy's photograph to many different people. Some of them recognized her and confirmed Branch's story, that she was a very quiet woman who went by the nickname Mute. But in spite of this, Sue, Sue could still not locate Amy. So, so there were people who were saying, yeah, we, we know Mute. There is a girl named Mute who looks just like Amy, who we've seen. We just don't know where she is. That's pretty much it. And I think one of the biggest issues here is that they very well could be telling the truth about seeing a young woman named Mute. But if you look up any photographs of Amy Billy online, she looks like pretty much a thousand different teenage girls from the 1970s. So I could totally see them getting mixed up, like seeing Amy's photo and mistakenly believing that she was mute. And don't forget, too, they have these girls on so many drugs and, you know, alcohol and things like that. that Their skin would change and there would be a different, I'm sure, like health care regimen and things like that for these girls so there could be a different look too versus the pictures that her mama would be showing which would be that beautiful flower child who you know wanted to be a model or actress long term so i could see a similarity for sure between a girl who's on the streets with these bikers and this beautiful young picture of her that her family would be showing i could see where a lot of girls could look like her right but but would be so different from who she was then that it'd be really difficult to pick her out. Yeah, that's definitely a valid point because this would have been 1977, 1978, and Amy went missing in 1974. So if she Mm -hmm. was still alive in that lifestyle for four years, then it's reasonable to assume that she might look a bit different. And how high res were the photos back then? Do you know what I mean? Like Ashley said, there could have just been a lot of girls that had a very similar look. And I don't know how high quality the photos were that Sue was showing them. Do you know, Robin? Um, I've seen some photos online that uh, they just kind of look like your typical 1970s blurry photos. Like they don't look bad, but they're not exactly like pristine. 
And I don't know if these are the same ones that the, she was showing to uh, all these uh, people around, but I could see how they could mistake Amy for another girl. So there would be a number of seemingly promising leads which went nowhere. In 1979, Susan received a phone call from an anonymous male who claimed that Amy was at a remote truck stop outside of Reno, Nevada, and she was beaten and drugged up and in desperate need for help. The FBI investigated the tip and learned that a biker gang had recently been at the truck stop but were unable to verify that Amy was with them. In August of 1980, the Billigs received a call from a man who claimed he was married to Amy and taking care of her. The number was traced to a young man named Joel Bolin who lived in the town of Cement, Oklahoma, but Bolin denied making the call and claimed to have never heard of Amy Billig. Since Bolin often had people over at his house for parties, he believed that someone else may have secretly made the call from his phone. Very interesting. Also, side note, who the heck wants to live in Cement, Oklahoma? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't that sound like there would be no trees in like the concrete jungle? Um, it just... <laughs> To all of our cement Oklahoma people, I can't wait to come visit you. But overall, it seems like an odd name. Um, but Bolin, they trace this back to his, I'm assuming, house phone at the time? I think so, yeah. That's where the phone came from. But he denied that he ever made it. So he's just assuming that someone randomly attending a party or visiting his house decided to use his phone to make a stupid prank. Well, seems odd. But I mean, like, who would be like, oh, yeah, I did make that call. I'm holding Amy. That was me. I don't know why he would make that call in the first place. Yeah, there's never been much follow-up on Joel Boland, but they never found any evidence that he was uh, complicit in Amy's disappearance. So it's possible it was just someone deciding to use his phone for a prank for no reason. Another jerk who's harassing the family. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. In 1992, the Billigs received another unexpected lead when they were contacted by a private investigator named Virginia Snyder. Snyder claimed that a British private investigator that she'd been working with on an unrelated case had been approached by an American biker inside a post office in Falmouth, England. The biker asked the investigator if he was interested in buying a girl. And when the investigator asked for more details, he was told the girl was an American from Oyster Bay, which happened to be Amy's birthplace. The biker also said her name was Mute. But when investigators kept asking questions, the biker walked away. Shortly thereafter, the investigator passed away and this lead never went anywhere. Oh my God. So we're talking about the idea that there's multiple people who are being approached that their daughter, you know, to buy their daughter or to trade their daughter. Think about that. When I work with cold case homicide survivors, they'll talk to me about the fact that when you don't know where your baby is and it's a missing person, the thoughts that fill your head of what's happening to them, right? In some ways, it's like, I, if I could get her body back, I'd know at least she's safe and not hurting. And now I'm getting confirmation after confirmation after confirmation that she is in this, you know, sex trade. And in 1992, so this is almost two decades after she goes missing, she's getting, mom's getting more information about the fact that the daughter yet again was trying to be traded. So God, it just is gut-wrenching that there are these promising leads that she'd still be alive, but they come with such brutal, gory details and, and horrific thoughts that would have to occupy your mind at the same time. This was pretty much one of the reasons the case got featured on Unsolved Mysteries in the mid-90s, because so much time had passed that uh, I think 
that even uh, Amy's family had come to terms with the fact that she was most likely dead. But then this new lead comes in that she was apparently being sold in England and could still be alive, even though she would have been in her mid-30s at this point. So she was still desperately clinging on to hope. But the fact that they mentioned that she was an American from Oyster Bay, New York, which is not exactly a big, high-profile town, is another one of those specific details where you're wondering, could they be telling the truth? And it was around the same time period that Sue was diagnosed with lung cancer and informed that she likely only had four months to live, yet she managed to make a full recovery following an operation. But shortly thereafter, her husband Ned would be diagnosed with lung cancer, and unfortunately, his cancer was inoperable. While he was on his deathbed, Ned told Sue, quote, I want to see Amy before I die, but he would pass away on March the 1st, 1993, at the age of 69. Ten months later, Amy's story was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, but the biggest development in the case would occur the year after. Remember how we said that a man named Hal Johnson had, had called the Billick family a few weeks after Amy went missing and told them he was training her as a sex slave? Oh yes, for sure I remember good old Hal Johnson. Well, believe it or not, this same man would continue to make harassing phone calls to the Billicks for the next 20 years. He seemed to alternate between claiming that he was holding Amy captive himself or that she had been sold as a sex slave to places like Saudi Arabia. He said some pretty horrible things, most of which I prefer not to repeat here, but as an example, he once told Sue that she was going to be abducted and sold into sex, and sold into sex slavery just like Amy because his clients wanted quote-unquote mother-daughter teams. Sometimes he would call the billing six or seven times per night and then go months without calling them at all, but it seemed like whenever Amy's case made the news, the calls would start up again. Oh my gosh, what a disgusting pig. Um, poor Sue. I mean, okay, so these, these phone calls just come in these spurts. So it's like you run to the phone every time it rings because what if this is the call? What if this is Amy? What if, you know, I missed something? And then you have people like Hal Johnson who are calling you incessantly and, and saying things like, I'm going to sell you into sex slavery too, or we're going to get a mother-daughter duo going, um, and that's why I'm going to come kidnap you. I mean, my God, they, oh, they never catch this guy? Oh, they do eventually, but there's a lot of torment in between. Oh, my God. On multiple occasions, Johnson made arrangements to meet up with Sue. And while she always went to the locations he provided, he never showed up. Throughout this whole ordeal, the caller never seemed to provide any exclusive details about Amy or her disappearance, which were not already public knowledge. But in spite of the non-stop harassment, the Billings refused to change their phone number on the off chance that Johnson might reveal some crucial information at some point. When Ned was dying of cancer, he said to Susan, quote, I can't leave you. You'll be alone when that man calls, end quote. And sure enough, after Ned's funeral, Susan returned home to receive a threatening call from Hal Johnson, who stated, quote, Ned's dead, isn't he? You're alone now, aren't you? You'd better watch out, end quote. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. When she's grieving the death of her husband, he's harassing her. And this is the early 1990s, like 18 to 20 years after Amy's disappearances took place. So this guy has just been keeping this on nonstop for two decades and just really, really sick that he's gotten to the point where he's now mocking Sue for losing her husband. And then you also have the idea that the, you know, the Billigs can't change their phone number. It's not just that Johnson might actually reveal information. 
that's the number that they would have had when Amy went missing. And so in the rare chance that Amy finds herself free, the only number she would know to call them at is that number. That's why you have families of missing children say, we can't leave our home. Like, what if she needs us? What if she shows up one day? You know, I can't leave. And it's that that deep emotional need to keep things the same in the rare chance that that baby comes back 20 years later. I mean, we've seen cases like this where someone is discovered decades later and able to be reunited with their family. So I think little things like that are things we would overlook as onlookers, you know, seeing a case like this. But that phone number was a tie to their daughter. And it definitely makes sense in this case because uh, she's getting nonstop tips that Amy is still alive somewhere. So she's probably hoping if Amy decides to come home and call for help, this is the phone number she'll remember. And that's why we have to keep it all these years later. Can you imagine how, like what type of, you know, mental illness or, you know, fortitude it would take to have that kind of dedication? Like I know dedication is probably the wrong word, but to continue to do something for such a protracted time period. It's not like he just hung on for like one, two, even five years to do it for 20 years. Like it's just mind boggling that somebody would devote that kind of time and energy to harassing a grieving family, especially like keeping up to date with things like Ned's passing. It's just incredibly unsettling. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, does this guy really have a personal connection to this case that he decides to be this obsessed with the Billick family. So for years, police attempted to trace Hal Johnson's phone calls, but it turned out they always came from public payphones. If a stakeout was ever set up at one of the payphones he used, he would always just move on to another one to make his next calls. By the time the 1990s rolled around, Johnson started using a cell phone which was initially considered to be untraceable, but by October of 1995, a new state-of-the-art state cell phone tracer was developed, that wound up matching the phone to an import company, which was being used by a branch of the United States Customs Department. When police played a recording of one of the phone calls to a customs supervisor, Hal Johnson was finally identified as 48-year-old Henry Johnson Blair, who would be arrested and charged with three counts of aggravated stalking. You're telling me Hal Johnson works for the federal government? Yes, he seems like such what? an ordinary guy on the surface when you hear more about him who just had this sick fascination or obsession with the Billig family. Oh my God. I <laughs> did not expect that. I expected it to be some guy who's like a hoarder sitting in his house making newspaper clippings and you know, like writing ransom letters with little magazine clips. Did not expect him to be working for the United States Customs Department. Blair was a 24-year veteran with the Customs Department who'd worked as a special agent in a unit which made drug seizures and was now the group supervisor of an anti-smuggling unit. One year before his arrest, Blair had even been awarded the Order of Isabella the Catholic, Spain's highest civilian honor by King Juan Carlos, for helping recover a stolen 17th century painting. Blair was also married and had two daughters, so his arrest came as a great surprise to everyone who knew him. When Blair was questioned, he denied having any involvement in Amy's disappearance and claimed to have never even met her. He said he was an alcoholic who suffered from depression and that the stress of his job had given him an obsessive-compulsive disorder, which compelled him to relentlessly phone and torment Sue Billig, Sue Billig for over 20 years. Following Blair's arrest, a reporter who was searching through Amy's diary discovered an entry written six weeks before she vanished, 
which suddenly took on a, a greater significance. It read, quote, Hank says as soon as I finish school, he wants me to go to South America with him. I told him he's crazy, end quote. Well, none of Amy's family or friends could recall her ever knowing anyone named Hank, but Hank just happened to be the name that Henry Johnson Blair went by. That is insane. So it's possible Amy knew Hank or Hal Johnson? Possibly, because uh, that Hank was the name that he went by and he was living in the same area at that time. They could never conclusively prove that Amy and Blair ever met each other. But it's like that entry about Hank in the diary was one of those things that did not have much significance for 20 years until they found out that a guy named Hank had been uh, obsessively phoning the family for two decades. So at the time Amy went missing, Blair was living in Florida and one of his duties with the customs department involved working as an undercover sky marshal which often required him to take trips to South America. And remember how when Amy's camera was found, it contained an undeveloped photograph featuring a white pickup truck? Well, during the mid-1970s, Blair often drove around in vehicles which had been seized by customs, and one of them was a white pickup truck. He also sometimes drove around in a beige van, and there had been unconfirmed sightings of Amy climbing into both a beige van and a white pickup truck on the day she went missing. Unfortunately, by this point, The photo of the pickup truck from Amy's camera was no longer available as it had been destroyed when the police property room was cleaned out years earlier. But in spite of these revelations, investigators were unable to find any evidence which linked Blair to Amy's disappearance and he possibly had an alibi. On February 22, 1974, Blair and his wife got married and left on their honeymoon to San Francisco, but police were unable to conclusively determine if the couple returned to Florida 10 days or 13 days later. If it was 13 days, then Blair would have been outside the state on March the 5th, the day when Amy went missing. Okay, so it is possible that he had a connection with her. I could very much see a young traveler, government employee, being this beautiful romantic prince to Amy, who's this little drifter, hitchhiker, traveler girl who wants to be a model. Um, He wants to take her across the world. I could see somehow as a pin pal, as someone who picked her up once hitchhiking, that maybe there was a little connection there. Now, do we have any, we don't have any idea if he truly was involved in her case, right? It's just that he was harassing the family. There's no way to determine whether or not he would have been the one who was near her. Yeah, that's pretty much it. We only know that he made the phone calls, but we don't know if he had any uh, uh, any involvement in Amy's disappearance or if he personally knew her. Uh, if you see photographs of Blair in the 1990s and early 2000s, he doesn't look like a particularly attractive guy. That would be an interest to a 17-year-old girl, but I have no idea how what he looked like in 1974 and maybe the fact that he had this job at the customs department, which required him to travel around, would have ca- caused Amy to have interest in him. Or maybe it was a case where he was interested in her, but it was not reciprocated. And of course, he was not going to admit that he had been hitting on a 17-year-old girl. Yeah, we could have just witnessed grooming behavior basically in the diary where he's telling her like, hey, I want you to go to South America with me. And maybe Amy wasn't complying or it wasn't moving at a pace that he wanted. And he decided to take matters into his own hands. So months after his arrest, Blair went on trial and was convicted on two counts on misdemeanor stalking for which he received a two year prison sentence. Sue then proceeded to file a civil lawsuit against Blair, and they ultimately reached a settlement for five million. Following his release from prison, Blair died in 2006. But this would still not be the end of the story. Blair's arrest reinvigorated the investigation into Amy's disappearance, 
and prompted one of the detectives to track down Paul Branch and interview him in October 1996. By this point, Branch was living in a trailer in rural Virginia with his girlfriend and dying of cancer. The interview with Branch failed to generate any new information, and he would pass away two months later on New Year's Eve. This case is one of the more maddening ones because we have so much just close enough information. You know what I mean? We have all these people who keep inserting themselves, all of these people who want to reach out to the family, all of these facts that seem to line up, and yet we're always just a little short or we run out of time with people. It's, oh, it's really difficult. Yeah, that's pretty much the story with this case, because obviously uh, Paul Branch and a bunch of bikers could not have uh, uh, abducted Amy if Henry Johnson Blair killed her. So you have to know that at least one of these people is not telling the truth, but it's just there's no conclusive evidence pointing towards any one of these theories. However, months after Branch died, Sue Billig was contacted by the producers of a British documentary which was being made about Amy's case. They told her that they had spoken with Paul Branch's girlfriend, who allegedly heard a shocking deathbed confession from him before he passed away. The girl's real name has never been revealed publicly, but the book, without a trace, referred to her as Tootsie, so that's what we'll call her here. The producers wanted to arrange a meeting between Sue and Tootsie and film them when Tootsie revealed what Branch said during his confession. Well, the meeting went through as planned, and Tootsie told Sue that Amy had been killed on the same day she disappeared. According to Tootsie, Branch was attending a party being held by the Pagans Motorcycle Gang at their clubhouse when Amy showed up. Amy apparently got so drunk and high on drugs that she mouthed off to one of the bikers, which led to her being gang-raped by about two dozen people. When Amy attempted to fight back, they injected her with more drugs to subdue her, but she wound up overdosing, so they disposed of her body by tossing it into the swamps of the Florida Everglades. Well, needless to say, there was a lot of skepticism that this alleged confession ever took place, especially when Tootsie said that she had been paid by the producers of the documentary to share her story. Oh, man. Again, why would you say it if it's not true then? Why would you tell the family these horrific details that, hey, don't worry, she wasn't a sex slave. She was actually murdered after being gang raped by about two dozen people Oh, and she was injected with multiple drugs. I mean, it's all just horrific information that Sue and her family have to process. So if this was all done for a payment by producers, yet again, another sick joke on the, the Billig family. And then if it's real, I mean, my God, that's that's tragic, too. We have all these people who say they've seen her for years, for decades And then that would silence that hope that she's still alive and could possibly be found. Yeah, the way I look at it, if Paul Branch, his girlfriend, and Henry Johnson Blair are all lying and had nothing to do with Amy's disappearance, it's just ridiculous that all these people would go up to the Billigs and share all these false stories about what happened to Amy and just manipulate them uh, like that. Like, how much bad luck can you run into to encounter all these people over the course of, like, three or four decades who are giving you this completely false narrative about what happened to your missing daughter? In 2001, Sue teamed up with writer Greg Anapu to share the entire saga of Amy's story in the book we've previously mentioned, Without a Trace, The Disappearance of Amy Billig. During his research, Anapu managed to track down the interview, uh, track down an interview, a biker named Pompano Red, who had been Paul Branch's best friend and roommate in 1974. 
Pompano Red actually confirmed that Amy was Branch's old lady and that she was so drugged up most of the time that she barely spoke. After Branch went to jail, Red claimed that he drove Amy from Florida to Arlington, Virginia, but after selling her to another biker who was supposedly traveling to New Jersey, Red never saw her again. So if Red's story was true, then this would have completely debunked the story about Amy being killed on the same day she went missing. Sadly, the release of the book would still not lead to any conclusive answers about what happened. On June 7, 2005, after relentlessly pursuing her daughter for three decades, Susan Billing finally passed away at age 80 due to complications from a heart attack. I find it more likely that she didn't die the day she was kidnapped because you have multiple, multiple, multiple biker parties, different groups that are saying, you know, it's the pagans, it's the outlaws. There was another group that are all talking about mute and how she was sold from one person to another where she was you know, taken by one person to another. You even have the incident over in England where there's information about this little girl from Oyster Bay. So it seems too common, too many different incidences with different people to to say that she was killed that night. But again, it could be the mistaken identity where we think that Mute is actually Amy and it's not. And then you have the reality that in 2005, Sue loses her, you know, her fight to find these answers and dies at age 80 after doing the unthinkable to get any answer possible, getting on the back of a known convict who's telling you that he was part of trafficking your daughter, going alone to his trailer, getting involved in motorcycle gangs to try to get answers. And all she basically got was harassment, the runaround, and no answers. The piece that comes with that is that when she passed away, I have no doubt she and Amy were, you know, probably with each other again. And so it's, it's, that's the only kind of comfort you can take from that. But there's so much rage associated with the fact that she and Ned die without knowing anything that happened to their baby. Yeah, it's always particularly sad when parents of missing children die without finding out the truth about what happened. But this one is particularly egregious because she was given so much false hope and false leads and did so much work over the course of three decades. So like you said, I really hope she finally found out the truth in the afterlife. So unfortunately, after 45 years, the exact circumstances of what actually happened to Amy Billig remain unknown. So I guess you could say, the path went chilly. And I think this is a good place for us to end part one, so join us next week for part two as we continue to discuss the unsolved disappearance of Amy Billig. Welcome back to part two of our series on Amy Billig. Robin, do you want to give us a brief summary of what exactly we covered last week? Well, this case takes place in Coconut Grove, Florida in 1974, and uh, Amy Billig is 17 years old. She lives with her parents and her brother, and uh, she called her father at her workplace and said that she was going to meet him to borrow some money so she could go out for lunch with her friends. But after she left her home and was supposedly seen hitchhiking, she vanished without a trace. And for the next three decades, her uh, family, particularly her mother, Sue Billig, would be forced to chase a lot of different leads including her being abducted by a biker gang. There was a biker named Paul Branch who came forward and claimed that he had actually bought Amy and owned her as essentially a sex slave for a time period before they parted ways. Uh, There was also a man named who went by the name Hal Johnson who left harassing phone calls with the Billig family for 20 straight years before he was finally identified and as a customs official named Henry Johnson Blair and arrested and charged with stalking. 
but they can never find any conclusive evidence that he was uh, behind Amy's disappearance or that he even knew her. And uh, many years later, there was also, after Paul Branch passed away, his girlfriend came forward and said that he had made a deathbed confession that Amy had gone to a party with a bunch of bikers before she was gang raped and uh, killed with a drug overdose, and then her body was disposed of in the Florida Everglades. But there's been a lot of skepticism about this confession, and it's never been corroborated. So basically, the family had to go through all these wild goose chases for around 30 years, and it seemed like Sue Billig was just one or two steps away from finding out what happened to her daughter, but she just never got the full truth, and it's still an unsolved mystery all these decades later. So needless to say, this case is a major heartbreaker. But before we discuss what happened to Amy, we have to take a few moments to talk about the incredible strength of her mother, Susan Billig. I've done a number of episodes about missing or murdered people whose families were amazing advocates for them and uh, went to incredible lengths to seek justice and keep the case in the spotlight. In fact, in our previous series of episodes about the Boys on the Tracks case, we heaped a lot of praise on Linda Ives, the mother of one of the victims, who tirelessly fought for answers about what happened until she passed away last year. But Susan Billig, she's pretty much in a class by herself. No parent should ever have to go through what she went through, as her daughter's disappearance was pretty much a non-stop ordeal, which ruined the last 30 years of her life. The entire tragedy is compounded by the fact that Sue had to experience five miscarriages before she had Amy, only for her daughter to go missing right before she hit adulthood. Sue always said that her biggest regret about her relentless pursuit of Amy is that it prevented her from spending more time with her son, Josh. He tried to assure his mother that it wasn't a problem, but it's clear that Amy's disappearance took an enormous toll on Josh as well, as he wound up dropping out of high school. Thankfully, he did wind up having a successful career as a stonemason, and he eventually got married and had two daughters of his own. And remember, this was back in the 70s when we didn't talk about mental health. We didn't talk about, you know, grief counseling and all of these things. We didn't have as many resources as we have today. But families, it it takes a toll on a family when any kind of grief occurs, when any kind of trauma occurs. And so when you put such a massive event in a family where one of your babies goes missing of course, your attention becomes fixated on that missing child. And I think it's a, it's a natural thing. And without the resources to try to help you find balance, you become consumed by that case. It's, I think, what any parent would do, need to know where their daughter is. And especially for Sue, she has all these people telling her that, that Amy's not just missing. Amy's alive Amy has been seen at X, Y, and Z place. So she really is like one step behind putting her arms back around Amy. So there's no, you know, fault to be had in that. And I, I do believe Josh truly probably meant, mom, don't worry about it. But there's no way that that doesn't take an in, in, a toll on every single individual. Look at poor Ned also developed a really heavy drinking problem to try to deal with it. You know, um, Josh couldn't stay focused in school or wasn't motivated in school there was just so much trauma surrounding every single one of them. And the fact that there was no real closure because they never got... If, if they had found out Amy was dead, uh, then they could probably just uh, move on with their lives. But because they were had this dangling hope that she might still be alive somewhere, it just became like a nonstop ordeal that they had to deal with for decades. Oh, yeah. And as someone who studies, you know, cold case murders, for me, I don't think I hate the word closure. I think it sucks. I don't think that there's closure. But I do think families are able to move forward 
from a loss and are able to rebuild a new life, new direction when you're able to have that peace and those answers. But you're right. This, there's no body. There's no lying the body to rest. There's no returning her home. There's none of that. And so it's just the ultimate trauma. Many, many families I talk to say the worst would be if our baby was missing. And of course, the loss of Amy crippled the Billig family financially and caused her father, Ned, to lose his art gallery and develop a drinking problem. If you read Without a Trace, it's astonishing how many hoaxers and wild goose chases the Billigs had to deal with. And we couldn't even mention them all on this podcast. So in our last episode, we talked about a pair of teenage twin brothers who tried to extort $30,000 from the family with a phony ransom demand. But to provide another example, there were also two former narcotics agents who approached Sue and said they would perform a search for Amy for $3,000. Sue gave them a $1,500 down payment, which was all that she could afford at that point. And then they proceeded to do absolutely nothing. But no matter how unbelievable or tenuous the lead may have been, Sue made sure to pursue every single one of them, if there was even a glimmer of hope that she would find her daughter. And there were so many occasions where Sue believed that she was only one or two steps away from finding Amy, but it just never panned out. That's, it's, it's awful. You talk about literally going to any extremes. Those two teenagers that extorted $30,000 from them or tried to, she literally meets them in a hotel lobby with the money, right? Didn't she have the money? Uh, I'm not entirely sure if she actually had money because she had informed the police and I don't even know if she had $30,000 to pay them. So she just kind of set up a stakeout and hoped that uh, her life wouldn't be in danger. But still, it's a pretty courageous act because you wouldn't have known at the time that these were just a pair of teenage boys. Oh, yeah. And not to mention, like we talked about in episode one, where she's climbing on the back of a of a motorcycle with a, with a person who's been convicted of multiple violent crimes and she's going into these biker bars and she's integrating herself in with these high level biker people. I mean, Sue, like you said, is in a league of her own. Yeah, I was just about to talk about that. Uh, What's most remarkable is that Sue's searches often required her to put her own life at risk by interacting with bikers and other shady characters. This was a completely different world to her as the Billigs were a rather artsy middle class family who lived in a nice suburban neighborhood. When Sue first met Paul Branch and he demanded that she accompany him to his trailer alone, she acknowledged that she didn't know if she would ever see her husband or her son again, but she just could not pass up an opportunity to find out what happened to Amy. And that just shows the level of desperation she was feeling, because at this point, Ned's standing right next to her and Paul Branch says, I can tell you where your daughter is or give you information about her if you get on the back of my bike alone and go to my trailer. And she looks at Ned and basically says, I can't live with the fact of maybe missing an opportunity to find Amy. So I think she was so desperate, that probably didn't even seem like that big of a risk for her. It was like it was worth every single moment if she could find some answers. And of course, Paul Branch didn't give her anything. Can you imagine how hard this would have been to be the son of Sue and Ned and be like, Okay, my sister Amy is missing, and now I'm watching my parents go every day hoping that they're going to find Amy, and I see my mother doing things that would be described by any typical person as being dangerous and really risky, that she's out there like literally risking her life, meeting up with known criminal Paul Branch alone in his trailer, not knowing if she's ever going to see the light of day or her family again. 
I can imagine that you'd be re-traumatized over and over and over again. Like the wound would never be able to heal because they're, like you said, Ash, closure is the wrong word, but there is no resolution. But then seeing your mom have to go through it again and again and again, it's almost like you're stuck at this impasse and you're unable to move forward. Sue believed that one of the reasons she was able to survive situations like this was because even though many of the people she'd met were unsavory characters, they still had mothers of their own and could empathize with the plight of a mother trying to find her child. So during her Unsolved Mysteries interview, Sue stated that when Branch told her that he'd once bought and owned her daughter, she wanted to kill him, but knew that she would have to hold back and relate to him on a personal level if there was any chance of getting Amy back. And of course, the Billig family also had to deal with the torment of harassing phone calls from Henry Johnson Blair for 20 straight years. But we'll talk more about that in a little while. Oh, good. There's more Hal Johnson to come. Oh, yes. He's done is some uh, more terrible things that we didn't even describe in the last episode. Oh, Lord have mercy. Well, okay. So let's get back to Sue real quick while she's standing in the trailer with Branch, who basically says, not only did he know Amy and did he know where she might be, but he had bought and owned her for a while. We all know exactly what that means he did to her and what he stole from her. And so when Sue says, I wanted to kill him, and yet she stood there with restraint and tried to be empathetic and compassionate and connect on a personal level, it gives you... Just, God, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up and it makes my heart just, I don't know, just really struggle to understand how you can be in such trauma and such heartbreak and just smile and pull it together and do that just because, I mean, you have to, you have to. She had no other option. It's heartbreaking. And when you consider the physical and mental toll this whole ordeal took on Sue, which included lung cancer and multiple heart attacks, it's nothing short of a miracle that she managed to live until the age of 80. But the fact that she was given only four months to live in 1992 and managed to hold on for another 13 years just demonstrates her toughness. Anyway, the closest Sue ever got to a resolution was the second-hand account of an alleged deathbed confession describing Amy being killed in the most horrific fashion imaginable, but there's a lot of skepticism about the credibility of that story. And that's ultimately the most frustrating thing about this case. There have been so many different leads in relation to Amy's disappearance over these past five decades, but for all we know, all of them may be red herrings, and Amy could have very well been the victim of someone who has never even popped up on the radar. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And it's possible that Amy wasn't this person that everyone says they saw, that maybe she wasn't mute, the name that she was given in in episode one that you referred to her by. But when we get back to Sue again, when she had lung cancer and was given four months to live, I truly believe in that deep, deep, deep will of saying like, not today. It is not going to happen right now. I've got too much to fight for. I have to find out what happened to my daughter. And she survived it. I mean, against the odds of, of what the doctors had told her. And so she continued to fight. And I, I, I don't know. I believe in miracles like that. Well, it's true. Like back in 1992, she was getting new leads on the case. And it was also going to get national exposure on TV shows like Unsolved Mysteries. So she probably thought to herself, I have to be here. This is my chance to get Amy's story out there. And she pretty much willed herself to live for another 13 years. And I can imagine it felt like Amy was almost at her fingertips. 
She has all these leads that seem tangible and almost concrete. Like you're hearing about appendectomy scars. People are positively identifying your daughter. They're all saying her name is Mute. There's all these things that seem to just say that she's just like, you know, a footstep away and that you could just almost reach out and touch her. But it seems to elude Sue and it's just so heartbreaking that she fought till her dying breath to find her daughter and she never got that resolution. So let's start at the very beginning. The last time that Amy was seen, she was supposedly hitchhiking, which likely raised some eyebrows with our listeners. But you have to remember that hitchhiking was just a much more common practice during the 1970s. Amy apparently did it quite often because she lived in a relatively safe area. And since the route from her home to her father's art gallery was less than a mile, I'm sure she had no inkling that anything bad could happen. It's because of cases like this that the general public became more aware of how dangerous hitchhiking can be. In Without a Trace, there's actually a story about Sue and Ned picking up a young female hitchhiker shortly after Amy's disappearance, which prompted Sue to tell her, haven't you seen my daughter's missing posters all over town? Sue would then cross paths with the same woman years later, who told Sue that learning about Amy's case convinced her of the dangers of hitchhiking and probably saved her life. I secretly love this, that Sue and Ned are out there traveling around going like, listen, something happened to our daughter who was a mile away from our gallery. She wasn't off in some foreign land. This was her home. This is a path she knew. And she went missing, possibly because she was hitchhiking. And they're out advocating in the 70s. They are these grassroots advocates that have suffered the unimaginable and they use that to change other people's lives. And that's what Sue and Ned did with this young woman. It's incredibly inspiring. Yeah, it's nice to have an upbeat uh, detail in this story for once, but at least uh, Sue and Ned were able to use Amy's experience to possibly save someone else's life. Now, the first major clue in this case was the discovery of Amy's, of Amy's camera on Florida's turnpike, which definitely belonged to Amy since it had her name on it. If Amy was abducted, then the most logical explanation is that her kidnapper tossed it outside their vehicle, or Amy herself may have done it, in order to leave behind a clue that she was in danger. But the problem is that since Amy was alone when she returned home from school on the day she went missing, no one could be 100% certain if she had the camera with her when she left. The Billigs even acknowledged that they could not remember the last time they saw the camera, so for all they knew, Amy could have lost it or had it stolen on a previous occasion. Yeah, but remember, she's going to meet her friends. This was important to her. She even needed to borrow some money from her dad. So I could absolutely see her getting this little camera so she can take snapshots with her girlfriends. And then don't forget, there's also Hank, Hal Johnson, who may have been grooming her to actually come out and meet him or go around the world with him or whatever lies he was he was telling her. But I just don't buy that this camera conveniently turns up 250 miles away and it has her name on it and it didn't happen to be a piece of evidence that someone was trying to get rid of to make her disappear. In 1974, before everyone had cell phone cameras, so if you wanted to meet up your, with your friends and take photos, you would actually have to physically take a camera along with you. So I could definitely see her taking it if she was meeting them for lunch. The location of the camera was found approximately 250 miles north of Coconut Grove. And we know that the outlaw biker gang were allegedly in Coconut Grove on the day Amy went missing before they traveled north to Daytona Beach for Bike Week. The spot where the camera was discovered would have been on their route to Daytona Beach, 
but the problem is that it was found next to the southbound lane. However, there would later be reported sightings of Amy with the outlaws in Kissimmee, which is south of Daytona Beach, so theoretically they could have tossed the camera while traveling there. Oh, for sure they they could have. I think that's exactly what happened is this biker gang has her. They're going on this loop because remember, based on multiple stories, they take these quote old ladies and they move them from location to location to location, sell them, trade them, whatever they're doing. And so the fact that the outlaws were in that area, her cameras found there, I think it's highly probable that there's a direct tie between the outlaws and Amy's disappearance. So the whole angle with the bikers started when the Billings received a phone call from a woman calling herself Susan Johnson, who claimed that Amy had been seen with the outlaws in Daytona Beach. Since Susan Johnson was not a real name and she was never identified, her story has never been corroborated. Sadly, it is true that biker gangs did abduct and sell young girls during this time period. The Unsolved Mystery segment about this case features an interview with a woman named Gina Andrew, who said she was kidnapped by a biker gang when she was just 12 years old and had already been sold four times before she turned 13. Gina was even traded for such items as a motorcycle and a pair of leather chaps, but after being passed around for five years, she finally managed to escape. If Gina was able to survive an ordeal like that for five years, then this gave the Billicks hope that Amy could survive as well. But the problem is that it doesn't sound like Susan Johnson actually saw Amy herself. She only heard this information from a friend of hers who had seen Amy with the outlaws. So essentially, this entire biker angle began because of a second-hand account from an anonymous caller who heard an eyewitness account from someone else. Okay, so I see what you're saying too, is that it's basically a game of telephone that starts this whole investigation, right, into this the outlaw focus. But when you look at the different stories, if it wasn't Amy, if Amy wasn't mute, there definitely was some girl that looked just like her being treated in this manner, which, I mean, the fact that this is a practice, a very common practice, it sounds like, is disturbing of itself. Do we know if that was Amy? I don't know. But Gina, I mean, traded four times in one year when she was 12 years old. It makes you think like how humans can function like this. But she turns up five years later, and she's not the only one. We have countless cases where kidnappings do result in a recovery. So I think that's why we see Sue determined, I will not stop until I have my arms back around her because there was every reason to think Amy was still alive. The part of the story which has never been made clear is how Susan Johnson's friend would have recognized Amy to begin with. I know that Sue Billig showed Amy's photograph to a number of people who were certain that they'd seen her with bikers. But the issue is that Amy pretty much fits the exact profile of what you'd picture a 1970s hippie teenage girl to look like. I'm sure a lot of teenage girls from that time period resembled Amy. And those witnesses could have easily mistaken someone else for her, as we mentioned in part one. I know Sue put a lot of credence into sightings of Amy at a convenience store in Kissimmee because a girl always bought vegetarian soup. But I hardly think that Amy was the only vegetarian teenage girl during the time period. Oh, definitely not. And like we said, you you show a beautiful picture of this teenage girl with her beautiful long dark hair, which was incredibly common at the time. Again, we've talked about the fact that if you don't have a distinguishing feature, a distinguishing mark on your face, really do we 
have the ability to, to scrutinize and pick people apart when we're looking for someone, right? And identify the correct person. But also remember, Amy probably would not look the same on the streets that she looked like in her high school photos, in her, her pictures with her best friends that we see online. She was healthy. She was clean. She was young. And then if you're talking about two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, drug addicted so that you're bound to whoever owns you at the time, you know that her skin would be different. You know her face would be sunken in. She'd be incredibly thin. And so it's it's hard to say that each time mute was passed around that that was Amy because it could have been someone very, very different who just happened to have the long, dark hair and thin build and things that Amy had when she was healthy. Yeah, that's the thing is, if you look up any photographs of Amy, she's like a pretty gorgeous teenage girl who always looks very happy and full of life. And I somehow doubt she would have that expression if she was being held captive for, by a biker gang. So that's why I could see uh, her mother showing random strangers that photo and they're confusing Amy for someone else. Of course, the biker theory gained more credence when Paul Branch came forward and claimed that he had owned Amy for a time and Sue found him to be credible after he mentioned Amy's appendectomy scar, a detail which Susan had never revealed publicly. Now, it's one thing to torment the mother of a missing girl when you're doing it anonymously over the phone, but Branch flat out told Sue to her face that she had once bought and owned her daughter like she was a piece of property. Like we mentioned earlier, Sue said she had to resist the urge to kill Branch when he told her this. If Branch was lying and never even met Amy, what motive would he have for coming forward and making up this story? That's what I was just about to ask you. Why? Why would you come forward and say, hey, oh, by the way, I was part of a human trafficking ring. Oh, by the way, I actually traded your daughter for whatever it was. I bought your daughter. What What does that behoove you for? Like, what, what benefit does it have for Paul Branch? I mean, you have to be, unless you have like a very uh, deep conscience, you have to be quite a sociopath to like tell a mother to her face and say, I owned your daughter as a sex slave for several months and not expect like a terrible reaction. So you have to wonder what went off inside his head to compel him to do this. Well, just for an example, say if he's somebody who has like histrionic personality disorder or something, I'm not saying he does. I have no idea what the psychological profile of Paul Branch is. But if somebody is experiencing something like that and they're requiring so much attention all the time, they always need to be the center of focus, of attention, of everybody around them. And there's often so much drama associated with it. If Paul Branch is an individual who is dealing with something like that, then it could explain why he is inserting himself here. And that's what he's getting out of it. Whether it's negative attention or positive attention, he's being fed the attention that he needs from Sue, from Ned, from a bunch of different people. It just seems odd what his motivation would be on either side of it. I just have a hard time believing this hardened biker gangster, even if he had this information, would be giving it to Sue, knowing that he's admitting to these crimes of owning this person named Mute. It's just, I don't know, the whole thing is like a big question mark to me. Well, the other hoaxers who provided false information about Amy did so because they wanted to profit financially. But in Branch's case, he offered to help Sue find Amy without requesting any money. So on one occasion, Branch even told Sue that if he wanted to extort money from her, he would have asked for it up front. All that being said, Branch still benefited financially as he made Sue pay for his travel expenses and repairs on his motorcycle while he supposedly searched for Amy. When Branch showed up to meet Sue in Tulsa after standing her up for weeks, 
He stayed in an he stayed in an expensive honeymoon suite at a hotel on Sue's dime, even though she couldn't afford it. And at the time, Branch was also facing legal problems for a weapons charge and a DUI. But a lawyer friend of Sue agreed to represent him for free. In the end, Branch did reap some rewards for offering to assist Sue, even though he provided her with nothing in return. So this whole episode may have been a long con on his part. Yeah, it could have been. This is the same guy, though, that um, might have actually taken her into the bar and tried to talk to some bikers and then was threatened to have his kneecaps busted or did have his kneecaps busted and, and Sue's placed back in that taxi possibly and sent away. Like, I guess Sue was never asked about that incident. Uh, are you asking, did Sue confirm that this incident took place? Yeah, and did she not tell you, like, did she not tell anybody how th- that her interactions with Paul went on these trips? Oh, she did. Like, she said she was in the bar and saw a branch approach a bu- group of bikers and then uh, a fight break out, but she can't actually confirm if he was injured like he said he was. Okay, okay, okay. But we, yeah, so we don't know. We don't know how far all of this branch stuff goes, how true all the things he's saying is. And yet, he is investing quite a lot of time, quote, trying to look for Amy. Uh, but it does seem like he's getting these kind of perks on the side, an ability to travel, an ability to get his bike fixed up, and it turns up with nothing. Like, I find a bit of a dichotomy between a guy who's callous and heartless enough to buy and sell a young woman is then going to be so emotionally invested in helping a mother find her daughter. Those two things like don't really align for me. Right, because are you really going to have a healthy dynamic where you fall in love and you care about the property that you've bought and sold, the commodity that you've bought and sold? Because you're trading Amy like she doesn't have any value. And yet now all of a sudden you're like going to help this mom pursue her as if you almost loved her and want to make sure that she's returned to her family. It doesn't line up. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's a dang appendectomy scar that really has me <laughs> flustered in that case <laughs> when you talk about Paul. Yeah, I see that for sure. And I also think that if he really, even though he benefited in the long run, that if he really was nothing more than a con artist, his easiest approach would have been to say to Sue, give me this money, I will go find Amy, and then never contacted her again. But the first time, he said that he was going to look for her without getting anything in return. So that's the part that's really confusing to me if he was just making this whole story up. So we just talked about this, but I previously mentioned a section from the Unsolved Mystery segment where Branch dragged Sue to a tavern in Tulsa where he promised to reunite her with Amy until a fight broke out. While there's no mention of this incident without a trace, the Unsolved Mystery segment provides a reenactment for it. And the way it's presented, it comes across as if the entire fight was a staged incident since Sue was dragged outside by one of the bikers into the parking lot where a taxi was already conveniently waiting for. I know that Sue later received word that Branch's kneecaps were broken in this incident, but since she never saw him again, I'm not sure we can be 100% certain these injuries actually occurred. Throughout all this, the only proof Branch provided to suggest that he really did know Amy was, like we just mentioned, the appendectomy scar, but for all we know, this could have been nothing more than a lucky guess or just a coincidence. It could have been. Like we said on episode one, when I googled it, 7% of people have an appendectomy. Um, and so that's a pretty high number of people that might have that mark. And like we said, if there was something unique, a tattoo, a birthmark, something that no one else could have, 
that would have been even more convincing. This one piques my interest. It's still, especially as a mother, I would, I would bite into this hook, line, and sinker of saying, like, that's my baby. I do think it's possible it was a coincidence, but that is one of those facts that really has me on the edge of my seat going, was it Amy? Was it Amy? It really could have been. And that, to me, is one of the most convincing facts of that. It's the one thing that really compels me, too. Even though I think 7% of people have an appendectomy scar, okay, well, if we're looking at the general population, then, so let's say we say it's three and a half percentage of women that are going to have an appendectomy scar if it's equal with both sexes. So, okay, well, then you drop the number in half. And I mean, it could be a coincidence that it's, you know, this pretty brunette who's like this flower child. But then I go back to what Ashley keeps bringing up that, you know, Amy would look very, very different if she had been in the like possession of these bikers because she likely would have been given drugs and alcohol. She would have been kept in unclean conditions. She would have been raped and all of these awful things that could have happened to her. She may have been hurt physically as well. And I'm sure she could have been psychologically tortured at, you know, many different points along the way. So she likely would have been a shell of her former self. So this picture that Sue is showing all of these people and saying, this is my daughter, would that connection be made so easily? I I don't know. But the scar is the one compelling thing for me that I go, maybe it was her. Now, following the episode with Branch, one other lead which potentially involved Amy being held captive by bikers was a story from the British private investigator who claimed that a biker approached him in England in 1992 and offered to sell him a girl who matched Amy's description. The biker apparently said that she was from Oyster Bay, Amy's original birthplace, and called her Mute, which is the nickname Branch said that Amy was known by. Well, as compelling as this lead may have sounded, Amy would have been 35 years old in 1992 and traded around by bikers for 18 years at that point. And I just don't know if someone in her position could have survived this lifestyle for that long. To me, the only thing about that that's like, oh my God, wait is that Oyster Bay comment. It's such a small town. It's such a random place. And here you are over in England saying that you have this kiddo from Oyster Bay or this woman now. She'd be, like you said, 35 from Oyster Bay. It's so specific that that's where Amy's birthplace was. And here's this girl that they want to trade. And they use the name Mute. So let's say Mute is not Amy. Who was Mute? Mute would have been in the same situation because she's part of the story for all of these people who keep coming forward. Someone was Mute. So there's also the matter of how Amy would have even made it to England in the first place, because I assume they wouldn't have just gotten her a passport and put her on a plane. But I'm assuming that like sex trafficking victims are often shipped over on boats and that's how they are able to get to other countries. That was my guess, like if it actually was her, if you moved a sex trafficking victim in the 1990s, it would have been a lot easier to do it by boat. Because yeah, they couldn't have just put her on a plane and shipped her like that. But even if you disregard the idea of Amy being able to survive for so many years, there are still a lot of issues with the England story. I will say that Virginia Snyder, the private investigator who originally approached Sue with this lead, she does have a lot of credibility. Snyder was a former investigative journalist who garnered recognition when she became the first female private investigator in the history of Florida. She was also featured in an Unsolved Mysteries final appeal segment about the Bird Road Rapist, where a man named Louis Diaz was convicted of the rapes of several women, but Snyder was convinced of his innocence 
and worked as an investigator for the defense until Diaz was eventually exonerated via DNA testing. So I do not believe Snyder personally made up this story about the biker in England and was only passing on what this British investigator told her. I do think it's a major stretch that a biker gang would have been able to take a captive woman overseas to England, but the part I really don't believe is that they would try to sell her in a post office. The reenactment of the scene on Unsolved Mysteries is unintentionally hilarious, as the actor they, as the actor they cast to play the investigator is this proper middle-aged British gentleman dressed in a flat cap and a plaid sweater, who seems like an unlikely customer for sex trafficking. They actually show a biker approaching this guy in a busy post office in broad daylight, where he says, quote, Hey Pops, you look like you could lose a little companionship. The investigator responds in this posh British accent, I'm afraid I don't quite understand you, and the whole scene is pretty laughable. I guess the investigator could have learned details about Amy's case and decided to make up this story in hopes of extorting money from Sue, but since he passed away shortly thereafter, we'll probably never learn the truth. However, I'm pretty confident that Amy was not in England in 1992. I now need to see the clip of this interaction. Um, you, sir, look like you need companionship. And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Um... Human trafficking may not have been as big in the town that they were at or at the post office, which seems like an odd place to make a trade. <laughs> but I, I too agree that Amy probably wasn't in England. But if there ever was going to be this, like if you had said this today in 2022, was she in England? It would have been a lot harder today, like Jules said earlier, than it would have been back then. So is it possible? Maybe. Again, if there was anyone by the name of Mute, my heart still goes like, well, who was that that might have been in in possession over in England? But it does seem like quite a stretch. It seems a bit odd, too. Like, I would believe it if it was, you know, from an Eastern European country going into England, being a sex trafficking victim, or, you know, from Asia or Africa. But from America to the UK, it seems like an odd route to go, you know? And that actor I was talking about from the segment is so stereotypically British that I kept expecting him to say, Pip, pip, cheerio! (laughs) (laughs) You doing your British accent was my highlight of this episode. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Couldn't resist. (laughs) And now we have to talk about the alleged deathbed confession that Paul Branch gave to his girlfriend before he succumbed to cancer. His story was that Amy wound up at a party at the Pagan's Clubhouse where she was gang-raped and succumbed to a drug overdose before her body was dumped in the swamp. So if you watch the Unsolved Mysteries segment on Amazon Prime, they have a brief text update at the end which mentions this so-called confession, and it kind of bothers us that they treat it as if it's a conclusive resolution to this case. A lot of people do not find the confession to be credible, and there's no evidence to substantiate it. Of course, the fact that Branch's girlfriend only shared this story after being paid by a documentary crew has led to serious questions about her credibility. She later admitted that even though Branch did tell her what happened to Amy, it technically wasn't a deathbed confession. So the way that she told it, Amy and some girlfriends of hers showed up at the party of their own accord and there's no indication that Amy was abducted. Since Amy had already made arrangements to meet her father and and friends of hers that day, It sounds like it would have been very out of character to just run off like that on her own, and it's unclear how she would have wound up at some biker party. And who exactly was this girlfriend who showed up there with Amy? Yeah, exactly. I'm not really buying this person's story because, like you said, Amy had a very clear path. She needed to get to her dad, 
as quickly as possible and get the money so that she could go hang out with her friends. I think with her camera. And then you have it where she is supposedly at some biker bar with a girlfriend and this friend wouldn't feel a need to share information, wouldn't be helping in the hunt for Amy. It seems very, very unlikely that that's how Amy was taken or passed away. I also have issues with the claims that Amy was gang raped by upwards of two dozen bikers, but since she fought back, they gave her drugs to subdue her and it caused her to overdose. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that if Amy was being attacked by that many bikers at once, they would not need drugs to prevent her from fighting back. If Amy was killed on the same day she disappeared and Paul Branch was present when it happened, why would he have contacted Sue? I mean, obviously, Branch was a bad guy, and if he intentionally led Amy's mother on a wild goose chase, even though he knew she was already dead, that's a special kind of sadistic. But while I do believe Branch took advantage of Sue, I also think that if he was 100% certain Amy was dead, he would have just asked her to pay him money up front and taken off. One of the main reasons people are skeptical that this incident at the party took place is because a lot of people would have been there, and as far as anyone can tell, no one else has ever spoken about it. Oh, exactly. Like, someone would have said, okay, wait a minute, this case hasn't gone away. It gets coverage repeatedly. There's a lot of people supposedly asking questions within the, the biker clubs. There's, um, you know, the television attention. There's Sue, who keeps bringing, you know, Amy's name into relevancy with all these people. And no one is going to talk about this party except for, you know, supposedly Paul on his deathbed. I don't, I just don't think that it's the route that actually occurred that day. I still am wondering, did Amy hitchhike to go maybe meet somebody else and not her girlfriends? Like, would she have had a a different plan? But to have that happen in 1974, communication wasn't as easy as it is now. You know, you had to make plans hours in advance. You had to, you know, script out where you were going because we didn't have the ability to Google anything. So I just feel like she was trying to get to her dad's gallery as quickly as possible. And whoever picked her up that day was just wrong place, wrong time for Amy. Yeah, I definitely don't think she was, even if she was intending on running off, I think she would have gone to her father first because she didn't have any money at the time and needed to borrow a couple bucks from him. So I think she would have at least gone to the art gallery first to get it uh, before she went her own way. So that makes me think that something happened to her before she can meet her father. Now, Greg Anapu, the author of Without a Trace, shared his own thoughts near the end of the book. And while he believes the Branch's confession never happened, he does not discount the idea that Branch really did have Amy at some point. This mainly stems from the fact that Anapu was able to track down Branch's old roommate, Pompano Red, who corroborated Branch's story that Amy had lived with him for a time before he went to jail. So Red drove Amy to Virginia and sold her to another biker. Unlike most of the other eyewitnesses in this case who claimed that they'd seen Amy after recognizing her photo, Red was one of the only people who actually interacted with her. By the time he shared this story with Anapu, Red had been ravaged by cancer and not spoken with Branch for years. So what did he really have to gain by admitting to having transported a kidnapped girl across state lines? For this reason, Anapu theorizes that Branch may have actually been the person who abducted Amy when she originally went missing, but fudged certain details of his story to avoid admitting this to Sue. So is, I don't know the legality of these things. Is there no way to prosecute Branch and Red, who both have said, 
hey, listen, I, I did a half hour at some point. And, and I do find it very compelling that Branch said he had her to the mother and Pompano Red confirms that, that he then had Amy. I, I do find that very convincing. So are you not able to prosecute or charge them with having something to do with the case without, you know, further evidence just based on their word? I think they would want other corroborating evidence. And by this point, uh, Paul Branch was nearly dead. And I know Papano Red had cancer, so I don't know how much longer he lived. So I'm guessing investigators just did not want to take uh, these two former bikers to court when there just wasn't, there's a chance they weren't going to live much longer. And when there was no other corroborating evidence to prove that they did what they said they did. But before we jump to that conclusion about Branch, we have to discuss Henry Johnson Blair and his 20 plus years of harassing phone calls. Even though Blair was not identified until over a year after the Unsolved Mystery segment originally aired, I'm actually surprised the show never made any mention of the series of calls by the mysterious Hal Johnson, which considering how close it was to Blair's real name, has to be the lamest pseudonym ever. When Blair was arrested, the authorities said it was not uncommon for people to harass and torment the families of victims in criminal cases, but it was unprecedented for the same person to do so for such a prolonged period of time. You might recall an episode I did on the trail went cold about the mysterious L'Enfant, which involved a man being tormented by non-stop threatening phone calls for nine consecutive years. We may talk about that case on a future episode of The Path Went Chilly, but Blair's stream of harassment somehow managed to last twice as long as that. I mean, Blair was obviously a very sick, twisted person who seemed to really get off on tormenting the Billigs, but it's hard to imagine why he would keep it up for two whole decades unless he had some sort of personal investment in their story. That's exactly what was so bizarre. I mean, this was not just a short-term thing. This was a you know two-decade-long venture where he had to keep himself inserted in the case. Remember those diary entries, which really intrigues me, where maybe there was a Hank who um, you know was was talking to and making promises to Amy. That makes me think maybe there was more to Blair than what first meets the eye. And and then you also have the idea that um, he uses this, this name that's so similar to his. But didn't we see that in a couple other cases where the guys were trying to make up the insurance scam and they were using different names to try to hide their identity? But it was always like their first name. And oh, last oh names. yeah. I remember the one with the boat, right? Yes. The Freedom 2 where it was guys like John Paul Russell and Bob Dozier and they were using pseudonyms like Bob Russell and John Dozier and yes. stuff. Really yes. unimaginative yes. stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, Hal Johnson got a little more clever than those boys got. I just got to give him a you know, little credit there because God bless the two with the boat. That was even worse. <laughs> The whole thing is even more baffling when you consider that Blair was a customs department official who was apparently well regarded at his job and kept up the facade of being an ordinary family man. Believe it or not, when Blair went on trial, he had the absolute nerve to assign partial blame to Sue Billig for enabling him because she never hung up the phone whenever he called her. Yeah, that's pretty much the equivalent of putting up the defense that a rape victim was asking for it. The only reason Sue endured Blair's abuse was because she hoped that he might reveal important information about what happened to her daughter. So of course she wasn't going to hang up the phone. When Blair testified, Sue was not actually allowed to be present in the courtroom, but once she found out that Blair had tried to blame her for enabling him, she decided to hit him with a civil suit, and good for her. 
What a disgusting pig. I mean, you have this reality that you were ruining her life. You were inserting yourself in the most intimate, tragic thing that could happen to somebody. And you're describing, remember, he wasn't just saying, I know where she is. He was saying that he had her as a sex slave, that he was training her, that he was doing things to her in explicit detail. And then he made threats against Sue that he was going to actually kidnap her and sell her with the daughter. So he was so violent in his calls, but he had quote information and God forbid that information was true. What other choice did Sue have, but to take the phone calls to endure the abuse just in case there was that shred of truth in his, in his call to her. Yeah, exactly. And we also mentioned in the last episode that he tried to claim that uh, he was suffering from depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. And that's why he felt this need to phone and torment Sue for 20 years. But it just seems like a really lame excuse. And he just uh, had no uh, way to justify it. And that's why he came up with this terrible defense that uh, Sue had enabled him by not hanging up the phone. But while it's indisputable that Henry Johnson Blair is a massive douchebag, it's unclear if he had any actual involvement in Amy's disappearance. During all of his phone calls, Blair never revealed any exclusive information to suggest he really abducted Amy, but there are two compelling things which connect him to her. When Amy's camera was found, it contained an undeveloped photograph of a white pickup truck, and Blair apparently drove a truck like that during this time period. Of course, since I'm sure a lot of people drove white pickup trucks in 1974, this doesn't prove anything, Though it is a shame that the photo was destroyed long before Blair was arrested, so we can't study it today. But the photo was described as featuring a vine-covered wall with the pickup truck parked in the background. This makes it sound like the vine-covered wall might have been the reason Amy took the photo to begin with, and the truck just happened to be in the frame. If that's the case, then it's likely the white pickup truck has no significance, and it's just a coincidence that Blair also happened to drive one at that time. But it's also possible that Hank had some connection to Amy, that maybe she had done what a lot of teenage girls do, and they had a pen pal. They had run into somebody at lunch one day. They had gotten in the car with someone who was intriguing and almost like a a spy man. He worked for the government, and he was going to take her traveling, and he was going to buy her nice things, and she was so beautiful and important. Remember, she wanted to be a model, so it's possible he told her that he could help make her famous. We just don't know. So it is possible that he had intimate knowledge and connection to Amy and that that truck was his, that that was one of the times she met up with this mystery man who was promising, you know, a kid the world. So again, let's talk about the diary entry, which was mentioning a man named Hank. And it's a much more compelling connection. So as you'll recall, six weeks before she went missing, Amy wrote that this Hank wanted her to run away to South America with him. And Blair often traveled to South America while working as a sky marshal during this time period. And I know that none of Amy's family and friends could recall her ever knowing anyone named Hank. But keep in mind that they did not receive Amy's diary entry until after Blair was arrested. But by that point, over 20 years had passed. So it's possible that Amy could have known a guy named Hank who everyone forgot about. But let's suppose she she was referring to Henry Johnson Blair. He would have been 26 years old in March 1974. So Amy, who was still 17 at the time, had begun a relationship with an older man. I could see her not telling anyone about it, which is why her friends and family never knew anything about this mysterious Hank. 
But the way Amy phrased her diary entry implied that Hank was interested in her. This doesn't necessarily mean that she had the same interest in him as she specifically wrote, I told him he's crazy. So theoretically, if Blair crossed paths with Amy on the day she disappeared, she could have resisted his advances or turned down his request to go to South America with him. If Blair didn't take this rejection well, things could have escalated into violence and Amy was killed. Oh, for sure. And remember, he's 26, she's 17. And part of the journal entry said something to the effect of when I graduate, which would mean, you know, that we're going to go to South America, which would mean he's waiting for her to turn 18, likely an older man who knows he shouldn't be with a 17 year old. And if he's a groomer, if he's grooming this this young girl, part of the allure and the sexiness of their relationship would be that it is a secret and that once it's all okay, he's going to make this grand statement about their love and things like that. So I don't think that she would have shared and I don't think that it would have been that crazy that, that this kind of interaction could be going on. I think we it's occurring a lot more than we know. And if Hank really was Blair, uh, the other crazy thing is that he got married during this time period. So he he may very well have been uh, carrying on this extra secret relationship with an underage girl while he is getting married to his wife. But that might have been the exciting thrill for him. And maybe he never had any plans to go to South America. Maybe he just wanted to take her on a temporary trip there during one of his trips as a Sky Marshal. But uh, I'm sure there was a lot going on underneath the surface that his wife didn't know about. I just find it really compelling that he says something about South America, the name is Hank. Like, this isn't today where air travel is super accessible to everybody. Like, how many people are actually going to South America on a regular basis where they would be like, I want to take you there? And, if it was and just having like, that hey, allure, too, like you said, like, the, he, I'm going to take you there once you graduate, we're going to go. Like, why not now? Why aren't we planning this now? Why is there this wait? Well, it's because he's much older. And like you said, how many men named Hank are offering to take her? And if it was Mexico, I'd find it like a little more common that somebody would be like, hey, I want to take you to Mexico once you graduate. It's right across the border. But I specifically want to take you to South America, not Central America. So I don't know. It is a really compelling connection when we couple it with the fact that he was so obsessed with this case that he was calling Sue for 20 years harassing her. The biggest uncertainty is whether or not Blair had an alibi on March the 5th, 1974. He got married and left on his honeymoon on February the 22nd and returned either 10 or 13 days later. If it was 10 days, then Blair would have been in Miami on the day Amy went missing, but if it was 13 days, Blair would have been in San Francisco and all the speculation about him is moot. I suppose an alternate explanation could be that Blair had no involvement in Amy's disappearance, but he did know her and is still the Hank that she was referring to in her diary. If Blair was making advances towards Amy before she went missing and she vanished while he was out of state, then this might explain his unhealthy obsession with her and his compulsive need to torment her family for the next two decades. Even after he was arrested, Blair may not have wanted to admit knowing Amy for fear that he would have become a suspect in her disappearance. Believe it or not, Blair's wife continued to stand by him during his trial. But that may have changed if he confessed to having made advances towards a teenage girl, which is what motivated Blair to keep up the facade that he didn't know her. And I don't know, I just have a hard time believing that Blair would have been so driven to keep up a non-stop stream of harassment for two decades if Amy was a complete stranger to him. 
it it seems unfathomable. I mean, like it seems ridiculous on any level, a lot of these characters, but Blair specifically, it was the level of details, almost like he was fantasizing about what he wished he had been able to do with her, where he's describing these sexual acts, these violent acts against her, or possibly even reliving what he might have done to her when he kidnapped her. That's what the kind of harassment sounds like to me, that it's this reliving of violence against her, controlling her, hurting her, and then even threatening the family. There's just something incredibly sick about it. And the fact that he says, oh, it was depression and OCD, like, I think there was a little bit more going on there than that, Blair, even on a mental health level, because this just seems like there's no way he actually made these kind of phone calls as a accomplished government official who's married with a family and yet this is something that occupies and almost obsessively occupies his brain with sue the only thing about this case which seems certain is that amy was likely abducted by someone who picked her up hitchhiking it could have been henry johnson blair it could have been paul branch or it could have been a biker gang but it also could have been an unknown third party we don't even know about If Amy was abducted by bikers and was passed around for a period of time after she went missing, I doubt she survived for more than a few years, as she either would have outlived her usefulness or become a liability before whoever had her disposed of her. At one point, during her search for Amy, Sue did cross paths with an attorney who told her he received information that Amy was in New Jersey, which is where Pompano Red claimed the biker he sold her to was heading. This information was never corroborated, but if this is true, Who knows how much longer Amy would have lived under those circumstances. Truthfully, I often lean towards the perpetrator being someone who never showed up on the radar and that all this business with Blair, Branch, and the bikers is nothing more than smoke and mirrors. If that's the case, then it's a major tragedy that Susan Billig had to spend the last three decades of her life chasing false leads. So much time has passed that we may never know the full truth about what actually happened to Amy, but if you happen to have any information on her disappearance please contact the appropriate authorities. So that about wraps up our series of episodes about Amy Billing. Jules, Ashley, any final thoughts on this case? Well, this case just highlights a massive issue of human trafficking, of sex trafficking, of these underground networks that it's possible Amy became a part of. It also brings to the surface this issue of older men grooming young teenagers, both male and female, and the dangers of that. So I'm grateful we're covering a case like this where these modern day issues are being talked about, even though this was a 1974 case. And then of course, you know me, the highlight of this story was watching the bravery and the beautiful way that Sue handled herself and fought for her family. I'm in utter awe of the way survivors find strength to fight for answers in their family's case. And they refuse to stop. Even when doctors tell them they have four months to live, they refuse to stop and continue to fight. I am sad Sue and Ned didn't have answers. I am grateful to hear that Josh went on to have a successful life. And it's just one of those cases. This one of of all the ones we've been covering, this is one of the more troubling and frustrating cases because of how close it felt we were to finding Amy. It felt like every step of the way, we were so close to finding out the answers. So I can imagine how it felt for all of Amy's family, like Sue in particular, like she was just on the front lines. She was going through war out there. She was listening to those awful calls from Hal Johnson for 20 years. 
She was afraid to hang up the phone for fear that he would provide just that little tidbit of information that would bring her daughter back home. And then he has the audacity to blame Sue for not hanging up the phone, right? Like she enabled me because she didn't hang up the phone. And Robin highlighted that it was like a rape victim being blamed, you know, that they were asking for it because of what they were wearing. And I think that was a really good way to put it, because how can you blame the victim? And Sue very much was the victim of Hal Johnson. And was he the Hank that Amy knew? I can't think of any other reason that this very typical, like, quote, unquote, normal guy who has this good job, who seems to be very successful and has a family and a wife who stands by him would be so obsessed with Amy's case and Amy's family. It just is unfathomable to me unless he had some direct connection to Amy. So I think it is entirely possible. I also think the biker angle is possible too. I don't think that like that as the story was told that Amy walked into a party with this friend. I think that she was going to see her dad at the art gallery and she was going to get that money from him, which was like $2 or something, and then going for lunch with her friends. So if she met any harm and she was abducted by the bikers, I think it happened while she was hitchhiking to go see her father. Not that she just randomly went to some party. So I think that there's like half truths being told throughout the story by all participants. And it's just so unfortunate that before Sue and Ned died, that there was never a resolution. And we still don't know what happened to Amy Billig. Yeah, this is definitely one of the most frustrating cases I've ever come across, uh, not only because uh, we have so many different theories where there's no clear-cut evidence pointing towards any of them, but there's no evidence leaning away to completely disprove them either. I mean, I definitely think there is a possibility that Amy was abducted by bikers, but I also think possibly that Paul Branch was the original abductor, and his story about buying and selling uh, Amy was just his way of telling Sue that he was the one who kidnapped her daughter without revealing the full truth. But uh, also possible that Henry Johnson Blair was the one responsible because he just seemed to have this deep-seated obsession, uh, in which case, if he was the guilty party, then this whole biker angle is just a red herring. But like we mentioned countless times, the big uh, highlight of this story is Sue Billig, because I have never seen a, uh, a victim's parent go to such lengths to try to find out what happened to their missing or murdered child. And it's just a major tragedy that she never got uh, any answers about what happened. So yeah, I've been obsessed with this case for nearly 30 years now since I uh, saw it on Unsolved Mysteries, but I couldn't tell you which angle I lead. I mean, I sometimes I think it's the bikers, some days I think it's Henry Johnson Blair, but uh, it is so frustrating that after all these wild goose chases and all these leads, we're still no closer to finding out the exact truth about what happened than we are uh, 50 years ago. But hopefully one of these days we might get a resolution. So I want to thank you all for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, any chance you have to share us on social media with a friend or to rate and review is greatly appreciated. You can email us at thepathwentchili at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at pathwentchili. So until next time, be sure to bundle up because cold trails and chilly paths call for warm clothing. Music by Paul Rich from the podcast Cold Callers Comedy.